In times long gone, in days of yore, there are legends and tales of dark folklore. Round candlelight and fireside, the tales are shared. Enchanting dark secrets in hushed tones declared. And from those days, both present and past, we beseech you now to brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. The sleepless tales commence, fellow travelers. I'm your guide, David Cummings. Have you ever asked yourself this question? How can I visit the most celebrated haunted hotel in America while also meeting some of the best horror writers out there and at the same time see the No Sleep podcast perform live? Well, believe it or not, I have an answer to that very specific question. You just need to get tickets to Spirited Giving on May 10th at the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado. The iconic Stanley Hotel is proud to partner with the Necronomicon and the Horror Writers Association to host the official StokerCon pre-party on Tuesday, May 10th, 2022. It will feature a lineup of acclaimed horror writers, including New York Times best-selling author Stephen Graham Jones and our own Gemma Amor who has a story for us on this very episode. And I'll be joined by Jessica McAvoy, Nicole Goodnight, Sarah Thomas, and the maestro Brandon Boone as the No Sleep Podcast performs two original scripts at the event. There will be a pre-show cocktail party, and you'll have a chance to take a ghost tour of the haunted Stanley Hotel, which inspired Stephen King to write The Shining. All ticket proceeds will go to the Glen Haven Area Volunteer Fire Department. Check the link in the show notes for tickets and all the details about this very special one-night-only event. Come get Rocky Mountain High with us at the Stanley Hotel. You'll want to stay there forever. Now, closer to home, next week things get all cozy and cuddly as we celebrate a certain loving holiday. And it's not like we're a horror podcast or anything, so you don't need to worry about anything horrendous ruining your romantic night in. But for now, let's make the right choice by joining people who are prone to making a bunch of bad choices as we start the show. In our first tale... We join Frank, who's been waiting anxiously by the mailbox for the results of his college application. It can be excruciating, waiting on a decision that could affect your entire life. And in this tale, shared with us by author Sean Michael, we get to experience Frank's elation firsthand as the next stage of his life begins with no regrets. 
performing this tale are Jeff Clement, Matthew Bradford, Dan Zapula, and Kyle Akers. So let's help Frank share the news with his friends and family. They're bound to be thrilled when they hear he's been accepted. Frank stared at the single word for so long that the hour hand on the pretentious modern clock had visibly moved by several degrees. The kitchen was sleek, surfaces shone with the dull bright reflection of stainless steel. He looked around the familiar room, shaken by the word. He felt as though he stood outside of time and space as he reread it over and over again. Frank neatly folded the letter back into thirds and gently slid it back into the messily torn open envelope and placed it back onto the cold counter. Never in his wildest dreams did Frank think he'd get into the university. The school where all his friends had applied and had all been accepted over the previous weeks and months. His grades and test scores were low and he knew it, but there was always the chance of an athletic scholarship. Frank wasn't smart, but he was huge and a natural linebacker, something him and his mother had literally prayed would get him into a good university. The prayers had apparently worked. Frank's father had gone to the movies some 10 years ago and never come back, so it was his mother who'd come to every practice, tutored him in math, and helped him write every paper, all while working double shifts at the local diner. She told him that if the worst happened and he didn't get any scholarships, they could always take out loans. She'd always said that word, loans, with the kind of quiet desperation and resignation that only somebody already crushed by financial debt could muster. But as his final semester in high school began, the days turned to weeks. And as those weeks approached the middle marker that was spring break, he'd received no collegiate correspondence. The prospect of Frank's failure began to weigh on him. And even worse, his three closest friends and teammates had been accepted on full-ride scholarships to the University of Alabama. It was just a state over, but Frank saw this as the end. He saw the lights go out on his already dim future. And without his friends, he would have to make his way alone. A smile slowly spread across his face, and with a jolt, he snatched up the envelope, crumbling it in his tight grasp. Envelope in hand, Frank strode, nearly skipping with excitement across the room and through the connecting hallway, arriving at the large, barred basement door at its end. Frank paused, looking between the two-by-four locking the door in place, the letter still crumpled in his tight grasp. He had to tell them, They would understand, he quickly rationalized to himself. With a look of determination, he lifted the bar with his free hand and he swung the door outward. He wouldn't have to be alone anymore, he thought. He would be with his friends and they would be happy all together at college. Frank took the stairs to the basement, two at a time, nearly faulting on the slippery second step from the bottom. Quickly writing himself, he entered the dimly lit room, tracking dark boot prints from the second step from the bottom all the way to the center. 
There, facing each corner of the room, sat four chairs, on three of which athletically built young men slumped, though Frank was easily twice the size of any of them, all bound, gagged, and blindfolded. The fourth chair sat noticeably empty. Frank turned his gaze to the ground behind him, at the base of the staircase, to his mother. In the brown pool lay a woman, face down, with long blonde hair, her body broken and the back of her skull caved in, the remnants of a large boot print still visible, the same size and tread as the bloody prints Frank had tracked in just seconds ago. Turning and looking at her body, he immediately registered the smell, the smell of human waste, decaying flesh, and the copper tinge. Frank's eyes began to water as he pushed the urge to vomit further down, suppressed by his psychosis. It was wrong of her to try to stop him. Frank was an adult, after all. If he wanted his closest friends to stay together, they would. And there was nothing anyone, even his mother, could do to prevent that. Even the stench of decay couldn't strip the grin from his face as he shouted that everything would be okay and that they could all go to school together after all. But as he scanned the room, looking closer at his best friends, a horrible thought crept into his mind. Something he hadn't considered after his mom had slipped her bonds and tried to escape. He'd focused too much on making sure his friends wouldn't wriggle loose, that he'd left his meek mother as an afterthought. She'd made it to the top of the stairs and was banging, screaming for help. He'd come home from class early that Friday, sent home since three star athletes were officially missing. The other students were concerned. The police thought it was a classic senior skip out early for spring break. Still, the students had been sent home and Frank had opened his front door to pounding deep in the house. She made him so angry. What if somebody had heard? When he had unbarred the door, it had launched outward, swinging hard and leaving a deep gash in his forehead where it connected. She tried to jolt past him as he staggered back, but she hadn't been fast enough. His massive arm shot out and his fingers found purchase around her wrist. He snapped her back toward the open door like a whip, feeling her bones crumple beneath his grip. She had screamed in pain as she fought for her life and bounced off the doorframe, shattering her collar and shoulder where she impacted. Frank recovered from his backward stumble and felt the leaking gash in his forehead, and his mouth wrenched into a scowl. He lumbered forward and kicked his screaming mother down the long staircase. His boot connected with her forehead, and he felt it give way beneath the force. At the bottom, he stepped on her head again until the moaning and screaming had stopped. She made him so angry, trying to stop him from doing what he wanted to do. Who was she to tell him that he couldn't keep his friends together? But the screaming and crying was still there, so he had stomped down again but its intensity only grew. What the fuck? What the fuck? Oh my God, he killed her, he fucking killed her! 
Frank did not hear these words, only the storm of sound that would not quiet. He lumbered up the stairs as the blood continued to drip from his wound into his eyes. He's leaving us here. Oh my fucking god, he's leaving us with her. Frank! No, please. We won't go. Don't leave us here. We won't tell anyone. No, Frank! Then he had barred the door. Now, he stood in the putrid room. He'd been so angry for so long. But that had been at the beginning of spring break, two weeks ago. It may shock you to learn that from time to time, we here at the No Sleep Podcast receive, well, complaints. Yes, it's true. And perhaps the biggest complaint we receive is that we offer nothing in the way of insomnia advice or treatment. Ah, but help is at hand. Author Jay Sisko has kindly shared with us a guided bedtime meditation to help you drift off. Performing this public service is Jessica McAvoy. So here's to being sleepy, dear sleepless. Get comfortable and listen how you want. You can close your eyes or you can gaze into the mandala. you've been following along with me these last 45 days, and I hope you've been telling your friends about these sessions as well, since they are a great way to detox and de-stress, especially if your daily tasks have been more challenging than usual. Now, we'll begin today's practice by sitting in any way that feels comfortable. I prefer to sit cross-legged, but any way that suits you is perfectly fine. Place the emphasis on the flow of your breath here. Make sure you can get those inhales all the way to the lower belly. You may also want to close your eyes to help you focus, but if you have one of my mandala posters, feel free to look at that instead. We just want to minimize any distractions, okay? So, as always, we'll begin with some deep, soothing breaths. Inhale for four seconds. And exhale for four seconds. There we go. Now let your body be heavy. Let it fall in any way it likes, as long as it's comfortable. Feel some of the tension you've built up over the day, maybe from running or pulling something heavy. 
All you need to do is just focus on relaxing the parts of your body where you feel that strain. Remember to unclench your jaw and feel free to tilt your head from side to side to help loosen that up. Take some time here to relax. Don't worry about whether you're doing it right or what's going to happen next. Just let yourself be. Feel the weight of your body against the floor. Note the sounds nearby. these practices work is that we'll focus on different points of stress for the mind, for the spirit, for the soul, and we'll work on allowing our minds to release those thoughts, not letting them dominate our behavior, not letting them interrupt our work, letting them dissipate, bringing ourselves back to the present, remembering that we have agency and strength and purpose that we can and will get through whatever is troubling us. So perhaps, as we're meditating, feeling our breath naturally draw in and out of our bodies, we get some of these upsetting or distracting ideas People get all kinds of thoughts in these quiet times. Perhaps we're remembering a stressful moment from the day, or thinking about a loved one who isn't there anymore. Sometimes we might even worry that, you know, we're bad people, or that the things we're doing are wrong. And it's important to remember when we have these thoughts that that's all they are, just shadows, doubts and anxieties trying to interrupt our journey to inner peace. And so when we encounter those thoughts, all we need to do is note them. Note that you're having these feelings and gently lead your mind back to the breath, back to the sensation of your body as it sits here with me, back to the present. process a few times every session. In fact, if you're just starting out, it might feel like you're doing it constantly. But as long as you keep noting these thoughts and understanding that they don't make you a bad person, that nobody who matters will ever judge you, that the things you do, that we do, will only seem strange or wrong to those who haven't accepted his light and that this is all in his name. Eventually, when they cross your mind, they become more like butterflies flapping past your window. Just a fleeting moment, now gone.
as we continue with these sessions, you will find that your daily tasks, though they might feel daunting, perhaps even frightening, also become much easier as we work on keeping the mind steady within our grasp at all times, not letting it pull us along with it as it veers toward panic and fear. Because, you know, everyone struggles from time to time. What we are expected to do is not always conventional. Sometimes it's chaotic. Sometimes it's messy. Sometimes the task at hand feels like something we aren't supposed to be doing. But now that we've gained this higher control of our minds, now that we can keep those racing thoughts in step with us, the things we can do in His name increase by the day until no amount of conflict, fear, or blood can hold us back. we've settled into a nice, even rhythm, I think it's time for our daily mantras. These mantras are just some simple phrases we repeat on a daily basis. I'll list a few, but you can just pick out one that resonates with you to help you set your mood for the next day in your journey. You know, these mantras are great for when your mind is racing with all these questions and worries. When the mind is trying to drag us away from his light, or when outsiders are distracting us with their unenlightened thoughts, remembering our mantra, repeating it in our minds as often as needed until we're through that difficulty, really helps keep us on track. Today's mantras are, I am capable of anything. I trust myself. My mind is just another part of me. I listen to my emotions, but I do not let them control me. I am a magnet for his light. When I am afraid, I will look to my peers for guidance. There is no such thing as perfection, and I am okay with that. The work is hard but I handle it with grace and dignity. My wants pale against his needs. I trust my fellows to correct me where I am blind. My body was made for this. It will not fail me. There are no innocents among the unenlightened. He is coming. He is coming. He is coming. The shadows already whisper his name. His light will burn away my imperfections. I offer my thanks in blood. I am merely one cell in a great body. I will spare who cannot be saved. The door is already open. We are already inside. I will deafen myself to ignorant cries. I will leave no survivors, no witnesses. I trust myself to know where to strike. The knees, the neck, the eyes. He guides my strikes. 
Where I am not efficient, I am swift. The night covers all. The earth thanks me for this gift. They have run out of air. Nobody will hear them. They will not be found. My eyes are yet to open, but they will. I am safe in his burning embrace. I have the love of my peers, and that is enough. I find peace in the collective. Think about these mantras and about which one fits with your intention for tomorrow. Think slowly about the tasks you've been assigned, not going into the details, keeping the mind within our grasp, but just thinking about them in plain words. Perhaps if you're recruiting new members to our little collective and need some extra strength as you filter through the confused and unenlightened, you may benefit from remembering that you are a magnet for his light. And those of us tasked with tending to our crops and livestock should remember that their bodies are made for the job at hand and will not fail them. Now, some of us may have noticed a slight tension in the air around us when we venture into the world of late, in our peer group, or in a group outside the cleansing circle of light. Maybe we felt some negativity and doubt, some resistance, not unlike the pull of the muscles as we stretch our spines to sit upright so that we can breathe clearly. It's important to remember that these pulls these oppositions, they should always be met with an open palm. Just as we inhale to bring in trust and positivity, we must invite others to join or rejoin the collective. We must show them that there is no judgment here that only friendship awaits them. Often we find ourselves with a new friend, a new member of our beautiful, glowing family, safe from the harsh storms of the world beyond. But even when that opposition holds strong, we don't despair, we don't worry. Safe in the knowledge that we are protected from the darkness, from doubt, from isolation, we exhale and we spare those who cannot be saved. Thus, our high missionaries, tasked with returning these tumultuous waves to the body of water, must take some time to thank the collective for its cleansing herbs which hasten the unenlightened to the earth for those among us who volunteer these individuals for rescue, just as a doctor removes an infected finger to save the hand. Even high missionaries, I'm told, can doubt themselves from time to time. And so we must remember that although their work can be taxing, 
it is nothing compared to his wrath. For when he arrives, his light will scour the earth and bleach it clean, preserving the bodies of the unenlightened in an endless inferno from which there is no escape. To him, we are so small that only the enlightened may truly know his glory. The rest, like insects, will be crushed beneath his mighty sandaled feet. He will pluck them like flowers from the garden, admiring them as they wither before him. Their screams will go unheard, from the smallest infant as he crushes it between his fingers, to the grief-stricken mother bashing at his ankles, obliterated with a single step forward. It is for us to save as many as we can from this fate, be they old friends, family, or even one another. Nobody is beyond sparing. It is only the enlightened who can survive, guiding our savior through this unfamiliar world as his light burns it clean for us to start anew. He will recognize us as friends, for we come together and grow in spirit to a size recognizable to him. He will accept us as his children, his lovers, his companions, and here he will complete his sacred journey through the stars. He will expire in a hail of fire, and that which he has not devastated with his presence shall be eviscerated by his death, leaving the collective to build the world anew. who cannot be saved, our methods are a kindness. Only resistance brings pain. High missionaries, remember that no matter the method required, be it the knife or the herb or sealing the unenlightened where they will not be found until death has come for them, anything is better than the devastation of his coming. And we remember that. Just as the pig works to scour its trough, so must we work to fill it. Whether they lie beneath the earth or are spread across its many fields in fragments, in smoke or in water, those we have spared nourish the soil they ready the world for our new beginning, and for that, they receive his blessing. And we take a moment here to think about those that we have saved, those who have joined us in the collective, in our mission, and in this guided meditation today. Our hearts beating to the same rhythm, our lungs breathing the same rich air, and our minds all centered on that which is most important, the impossible brilliance of his light. We stand encapsulated in his fiery heart, the righteous cut of his gaze bending around us as he walks with us, hand in hand. So, as we close today's meditation, 
Let us inhale and think of this fast approaching future. And as we exhale, let us expel our doubts, our fears, our earthly attachments, so as to make room for his love. doesn't love long car trips with the family, stuck inside a steel box in close proximity to each other, moving at the whims of the traffic around you. 
It's a sweltering day and the air conditioning is broken. And in this tale, shared with us by author Gemma Amour, it's clear that we're on the freeway to frustration. Performing this tale are Andy Cresswell, Erica Sanderson, David Alt, Penny Scott Andrews, and James Cleveland. So don't put the pedal to the metal, we're not moving fast enough for that. Just be patient, because the traffic jam is three lanes deep. Lucy is stuck. As traffic jams go, it is the worst she has ever encountered. Hundreds of cars stand gridlocked, nose to tail, and three lanes deep on the motorway all around her. A broiling midsummer sun beats down mercilessly upon them all, and the air shimmers with a thick, soupy heat. It bounces off countless bonnets and windscreens, and she can see it rippling over the grey, worn tarmac, like wrinkles in a pond when a stone is thrown. She has been trapped like this for almost an hour now. Trapped, desperately hot, and horribly miserable. There is no shade, no breeze, and no cloud cover in the sky. Just a blazing white ball of fire burning relentlessly. Her car ticks and groans gently as the brutal heat forces the metal to expand, warp, contract again an unwelcome percussive accompaniment to her misery. Her brother, Lucas, shifts in his seat beside her, a steady trickle of sweat making its way down the right side of his face. He keeps wiping it away with the palms of his hands, then shaking them to flick the sweat off. Little salty droplets splat onto the dashboard and across Lucy's right arm, making her flinch. It is driving her mad. Stop doing that, it's disgusting. She wipes her arm with the bottom of her damp shirt. Lucas lets out a frustrated moan, ignoring her and wiping his brow for the thousandth time. He bangs the steering wheel with his hands, letting his frustration and discomfort show. It takes a lot for his usually cool and collected exterior to slip and Lucy can see that he is on the verge of losing his temper. He isn't the only one. It's hotter than the devil's ass crack in here. His face turns an even brighter shade of red. Lucy wonders briefly about spontaneous combustion and how hot a person has to be before they actually melt or burst into flames or simply disintegrate into a pile of ash. Here. She passes him an almost empty bottle of water. He takes it and swigs, then grimaces. Hot. Gross. The air conditioning in the car is broken and has been for well over a year. The siblings have been nagging their dad to get it fixed, but he keeps muttering about the cost of parts and labor being more than the worth of the whole car. And so here they are, immobilized, the windows wound down as far as they will go. Zombies sitting in a heat that is as thick as freshly poured tarmac. It pins them to their seats. Lucy feels as if a huge, hot cow is lying on top of her. She can't think properly. She can't speak. She can barely breathe. How much longer do we have to sit here? Her brother snorts. Well, if the fucking radio worked in this pile of shit 
car, we'd be able to get traffic updates, wouldn't we? Oh, but it doesn't work, does it? Just like the aircon and the windscreen wipers and the front left indicator and the sat-nav because Dad doesn't believe in fixing things, does he? Prick. They sit in silence for a while longer before Lucy thinks to look at her phone. Her fingers, slick with moisture, slide uselessly across a blank, black screen. Phone battery's dead. Yours? Lucas shakes his head. Died about three hours ago. They sigh for the thousandth time and return to staring listlessly through the front windscreen. Time passes. A strange, rich smell slowly begins to permeate the air around them, faint at first, and then as the minutes crawl past with more intensity. Lucy wrinkles her nose. What's that? Fucking stinks! Lucas shifts in his chair, wincing. Christ knows. Probably some roadkill nearby or maybe the tarmac melting. It does fucking stink. I don't think it's tarmac. Well, I don't fucking know, Lucy, alright? You're welcome to get out and explore for me if it bothers you that much. There is something odd in his eyes as he says this. Something... knowing. His words sound rehearsed. Almost stagey. Disingenuous. Lucy cannot for the life of her figure out why, but she feels somehow as if Lucas knows where the smell is coming from and doesn't want to tell her. They lapse into silence and the smell intensifies. Lucy dismisses her doubts about Lucas as extreme fatigue on her behalf and returns to staring out of the window, acutely aware that every moment that passes is a moment of her life that she will never recover, never enjoy. The futility of her situation depresses her almost to the point of coma, and her chin drifts towards her chest as she begins to doze. The sun blazes on. A sound swells in the distance. Lucy frowns, waking from her half-sleep. It sounds like a motor, but everything around her is now parked, handbrakes on, engines switched off. She twists in her seat, the leather sticking to her skin and tugging at it painfully. She manages to crane her head around and is just about to stick it out of her window for a better look when a motorbike appears right next to the car, roaring past at a gleeful breakneck speed with mere millimeters to spare. Lucy has a split second to react, yanking her head backwards before the bike takes it clean off. Hey! She shakes her fist after the bike like an angry old man in a cartoon. The motorbike and its leather-clad rider ignore her, weaving easily between the lanes of parked cars, vans, lorries and trucks, then disappears from view. She catches the eyes of three lads who are in the car immediately to the left of her, on the passenger side, her side. The driver grins at her, leans out of his own window and shouts after the motorbike. He makes the appropriate hand gesture, and Lucy smiles back weakly, her heart thudding in her chest from shock, and then slumps back into her seat. Oh, there's always one, isn't there? Always one smug bastard who thinks he's better than us because he has two wheels instead of four. Lucy doesn't answer. She wishes she was on that bike, moving forward, only moving forward, making headway instead of baking in the midday sun in the middle of the fucking M4 like a tray of overdone flapjacks. And that smell. Oh, God. 
that smell is worse now than ever before. She begins to think that Lucas is right about roadkill. It smells foul and yet sweet, like the sugar beet factory she used to smell near her house when she was a child. A headache pokes at her temples. Another ten minutes creak by. The sun shines down. The temperature on the dashboard indicator ticks up another degree. Lucy loses her battle with frustration. What the fuck is going on up there? She gestures vaguely at the long queue of stationary traffic in front of them. She is beginning to feel desperate. There is a new problem to add to her load. A burgeoning need to urinate has made itself known despite, or perhaps because of, her dehydrated state. Her brother shrugs. Probably a smash up ahead. I could see blue lights flashing earlier. There are too many bloody people on this earth. Lucy shifts in her seat to try and ease the pressure on her bladder. You've said that quite a lot on this trip. You sound like Dad. Have I told you that? Shut up, Lucas. Her bladder cramps and she winces and bites her lip. Time crawls on and nothing changes except the smell, which gets worse and worse and worse until she is convinced it is a living, writhing, tangible thing, invading her orifices, crawling down her throat, choking her. The smell, the cars, the heat and the building pressure on her bladder, that's all her life has become now. A collection of uncomfortable things to be born. I'm going to live out the rest of my days in this traffic jam. I'll become a melted lump of a person like the stub of an old candle left on a windowsill. The sun shines on. The temperature readout on the dash clicks up to 33 degrees. As the second hour of their predicament approaches, people begin to get out of their cars. They stretch luxuriously and congregate in the gaps between lanes, standing around, smoking, crouching down, doing anything to avoid sitting and roasting in their tin boxes on wheels. It makes Lucy feel slightly better that there are obviously other motorists who haven't fixed their aircon either. Doors open and shut all along the motorway. Voices begin to rise and mingle, and gradually the feel of something almost festive spreads as people united in their suffering do what they can to make the best of it. The lads in the car to the left of them get out, pop open the boot, pull out a cooler box of cold Coke cans and begin passing them around. The driver of the car presses one into Lucy's hand through her open window. Here you go, sweetheart. Can't he smell that? She swallows back bile, but apparently he can't. She smiles tremulously, grateful, now almost incapable of speech. The burning desire to go to the toilet has grown all-consuming. She looks at Lucas. I need to go to the bathroom. The smell is now so foul she fears she might faint. She can see it is affecting him too. The muscles in his jaw work overtime as he fights to control his stomach. A reluctant sympathy spreads across his face nonetheless. Come on. I passed a woman in a camper van a ways back before we got gridlocked. I bet she's stuck too, and I bet she'll have a toilet you can use if we ask nicely. Lucy nods, on the verge of tears, and unpeels herself slowly from the sticky, hot leather of the car seat. Anything to get away from the cloying, all-pervasive stench of... whatever it was. 
If she thought it was hot in the car, she is in for a treat as she steps out onto the burning tarmac. It hits her like a bat to the face, solid, searing heat. She can feel it rising through the soles of her sandals, her bladder threatening to explode. All she can think is, Help. I'm in hell. The boys from the neighboring car are putting up a parasol they have somehow stashed in the boot of their car. Come and join us under here. Lucy scans the motorway desperately, looking for the camper van Lucas mentioned. I've just got to go stretch my legs first. Her brother smirks, gives the lad a knowing look. Call her nature. (laughs) The boys chuckle as she turns beetroot red. (laughs) Good luck with that. Not much privacy out here. Lucy is silent, miserable, shifting from one foot to the other constantly. Oh, come on then, save us a spot under that brolly. Will do. The siblings turn and walk towards the camper van, which Lucy eventually spots parked about six cars back in the slow lane. It seems to glow in the sunshine, the promise of relief a holy grail to her right now. As they approach, Lucy hobbling and holding her stomach, she takes comfort in two things. That the smell is subsiding the further she gets from her car, and the fact that the van is more of a full-scale motorhome than a camper. A huge old chrome thing, an American-style Winnebago. It gleams like a great silver bullet in the glare of the sun, and is hard to look at the closer she gets, so she must shield her eyes. And the driver of the van is indeed a woman, as Lucas had said. She sits next to her vehicle in a folding camp chair, a cold glass of something in one hand, a small umbrella that she is using as a parasol held elegantly in the other. She wears huge black sunglasses and a massive sun hat that throws her whole face into shadow. She looks as if she is on holiday in the French Riviera, not stuck in a traffic jam on a shitty motorway alongside thousands of other unfortunates. Lucy lets her brother do the talking. Hi there. The woman smiles and lifts an eyebrow above the rim of her glasses, an inquisitive and sexy gesture that Lucas appears to appreciate. By this point, Lucy couldn't care less if she has five pairs of eyes stuck to the ends of each fingertip she needs to piss so badly. She is so close to losing control of her bladder that her whole body is now cramped with the effort of not letting go. Not like this, not in front of rows and rows of people. Just hang on. Just hang on. Hello. Lucas turns his charm up to ten on the dial. I don't suppose we could ask a huge favour, could we? Uh, We've been stuck in this traffic jam for almost two hours now, and my sister here doesn't feel very well. In in fact, to tell the truth, to tell the truth, she desperately needs to use the bathroom, but, well, out here there aren't even any trees she can hide behind. And we were wondering, as you have this big van, whether you might allow her to use the bathroom, if you have one, you'd be helping us out in desperate times. Lucy is beyond desperate now, hopping from foot to foot, tears welling in her eyes. She has seconds before she cannot hold it anymore. I'm so sorry to ask. I mean, I'll pay you for the inconvenience. The woman holds up a hand to silence her. Oh, don't be silly. I've been there. I understand. Of course you can use my bathroom. She stands gracefully, folding the umbrella. 
and opens the side access door to the van. Just in there? She has an odd, secretive smile on her face. But Lucy doesn't have time to think about this. She only needs relief and almost faints with gratitude as the woman holds the door open for her. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You are my hero. Lucy scrabbles at the cabinet door and then fumbles to shut it behind her. She sees a fully flushable toilet mounted to the wall to the left of her. She hastily drags her clothes down past her knees, fingers and hands now ten sizes too big for her. She is sweaty and hot and everything is swollen, sticking and catching in the moisture of the day. She wrestles with her knickers and eventually they do as they are told and she finally, finally, blissfully, wonderfully is able to relieve herself. Water jets out of her in an urgent, hot stream of relief. Afterwards, she sags against the small toilet cabinet door, panting, overcome. Blessed, blessed relief. She thanks her lucky stars for the Winnebago and the woman in dark glasses. She flushes and resumes the wrestling match with her sticky, sweaty clothes. Once dressed properly, she looks around for some soap. There is a dispenser on the far cabinet wall, mounted above a tiny chrome sink, and she reaches out to depress the pump. Something moves just behind the dispenser. A tiny, tiny movement, barely perceptible, but it catches her eye. Lucy freezes, arm outstretched. The movement occurs once more. She squeaks in surprise and then leans in closer, peering at the source, and finds a hole cut into the cabinet wall, very like an empty knot hole that you find in wooden floorboards sometimes. It is perfectly round and about the size of a coin, and there is something alive behind it. What the fuck? Behind the wall, there is more movement, another small noise. She frowns and leans in closer, trying to see what it is behind the hole. Is someone else in the van? A partner, maybe, or a pet, in the next partition? Lucy had thought the woman was alone. She gave that impression. But she hadn't exactly paid too much attention either way. She'd been distracted. Another slight shifting. And another noise. A distinctly human-sounding noise. Almost a moan. Moaning? Lucy's brain immediately leaps to the worst possible conclusion. Peeping Tom. Pervert. Spyhole. Voyeur. Watching me. In the toilet. No wonder that woman had been so keen to let her in. It's obviously something she does. Some perverted kink she's into. Sure, you can use the facilities, but there's a price to pay. Your privacy. Oh God, what if there are cameras rigged up? Suddenly angry, she thrusts her right eye close to the hole and peers in, trying to identify the source of the moaning. And she sees a man in the half-dark, bound, gagged, and propped upright in a small adjoining storage cabinet. A thin light leaks into the cabinet probably from cracks around a door Lucy can't see, or more missing knotholes in the wood. 
The light sits gently upon the man's prone form like dust, highlighting his face and the bare skin of his shoulders, which move up and down in jerky, panicked twitches. Lucy stares in disbelief at him, slowly registering the cable ties around his wrists and ankles, the lack of clothing except for stained and dirty underwear, the blood. He is covered in blood, as if painted with it, and his eyes are wide, nostrils flared with a mad type of terror. He moans again and makes a gurgling noise, low in his throat. He knows someone is there. He wants Lucy to help him. Oh God, oh God. Her hand flutters up to her mouth. She is cold all over, an alien feeling given the heat of the day. Lucy jerks her head back from the hole, heart thumping, her own blood pounding in her ears. She checks behind her to see if the toilet door is still locked. It is. Trembling, she slowly puts her eye to the peephole once more. The man rolls his head back, the moaning, gurgling sound rattling out into the closed space. Then, Lucy sees the wound on his neck, fresh and deep and wet, like a wide-open mouth. His throat has been cut, probably only moments before she'd walked into this van. He is dying. Lucy recalls the odd, secretive smile on the mysterious woman's face as she'd opened the door for her, knowing what was hidden inside the van, thrilling to her own dirty little secret. The man continues to fight for his life, blood sheeting down his naked body. Paralyzed, with her face glued to the wall, Lucy watches as he struggles to breathe, his chest fluttering with tiny, futile movements as he tries to draw air in through his severed windpipe. His focus locks onto her, one disbelieving eye peering in at him through the spy hole, and he pleads silently for help. But she knows, deep down, in some instinctive way, that he is beyond help. And so Lucy watches, a prisoner in time, a statue, and the man moans again and then gargles and chokes, drowning in his own blood. Red mist sprays from his mouth and bubbles from his neck, and finally, in a slow and graceless defeat, his chin sinks to his chest. He falls sideways, slumped, dead. Dead. The spell is broken. Lucy starts to scream and then bites down on her wrist, hard to stop herself. Her body is alive with adrenaline and fear. Out. I have to get out. And then, because she loves him... My brother is out there. I can hear him talking to that woman. And I have to get him out, away from this, before she slits our throats too. But as Lucy opens the toilet cabinet door, slowly, softly, she understands that it is too late. She can hear voices close to her, closer than they would be if they were both still standing outside the van. She inches cautiously out of the toilet, trying to assume a neutral, pleasant expression and failing. She can see the eyes of the dying man in the closet, wide, glaring, begging for her help. 
then fixing on something far away as the life left him. There is the unmistakable sound of a bottle cap being popped off a beer bottle, and then another staccato, and a chink, glass upon glass. Then laughter, both male and female. Lucy edges around the corner of the toilet cabinet and sees her brother inside the van with the woman, an ice-cold bottle of Heineken on its way up to his mouth. The bottle grazes his lips. Lucas! What? I might as well make the most of it. (laughs) He chuckles, winking at the woman. Lucy feels sick and powerless. She has no doubt that the beer is drugged and that one solitary sip will be enough to put her brother out like a light. The woman has removed her sunglasses. She watches Lucy with bright, cold, intelligent eyes, assessing her like a bird assessing an insect. You can't drink and drive, Lucas. Besides, I don't feel well. I'd like you... I'd like you to walk me back to the car. She tries to communicate that something is horribly wrong with her eyes, but the idiot only has eyes for the woman who is, admittedly, gorgeous. Lucy can see that now. She has long legs and long, dark hair and full red lips. She's also a murderous predator, but Lucy guesses that doesn't translate so well at first glance. Lucas makes no move to depart, so Lucy lunges forward, grabbing his wrist. Come on! She pulls him away, towards the door, towards safety, and the crazy woman puts down her beer bottle in a slow, graceful and deliberate movement, and reaches into a pocket for something hidden and takes a step forward, and Lucy feels as if her heart will burst from fear as she pulls and pulls urgently on Lucas's wrist, trying to drag him to safety, trying to leave the nightmare van, and the woman takes another step forward, and something bright and shining slides free from her pocket, and Lucy can see that it is a knife. She can tell that Lucas hasn't spotted it yet, and she feels a scream swelling in her throat, and then... And then, she hears it. Or, more accurately, she becomes aware of it, despite everything else that is happening. It rises and looms like an approaching wave. Quiet at first, then building in intensity and urgency. It is the sound of people screaming. Lucy tears her eyes away from the woman reluctantly, trying to establish which threat is greater, and glances to the open door to see what is happening outside. Because something, something is happening. Something somehow worse than the dying man in the closet. All the hairs are up on the back of her neck, and her arms prickle with goose flesh. Something terrible is going on. There is a blur of activity and a man races past, eyes wide with panic. His shirt is red with spray patterns of gore. Within moments, he is gone, running for his life, his arms and legs pumping hard. Lucy hears a thump and a large, metallic, screeching sort of crash in the distance. What the fuck? She moves as if in a dream towards the door, towing Lucas behind her. 
for she has not let go of his wrist. The woman with the knife seems to have lost interest in them and is frozen like a deer in headlights, nostrils flaring as she listens to the oncoming tide of screams, crashes and thuds. What is it? Another streak of movement and another man stumbles past and then a woman and then more people, children, men, women, old, young, dogs. Everyone is suddenly running, running and screaming. A desperate exodus of people abandoning their cars and racing away from, from something. But what? The screeching, crashing, squeezed metal noise gets closer, followed by loud, distinct thumps that shake the ground, rattling the walls of the Winnebago. Hundreds of voices raise up in anguish and panic, and Lucas and Lucy look at each other, wide-eyed. Let's go. Then they are out of the van and running too, running for their lives, like small, feral animals fleeing a burning forest. The woman in the van, the body in the cabinet, it all pales in comparison to what is happening around them. The thumps and crashes get closer and closer, and the ground shakes beneath the weight of something monstrously huge. Lucy trips, plowing forward, her ankle turning under her, and is almost trampled underfoot by the crowds of people behind. But Lucas hauls her up just in time. She regains her footing, sobbing, almost blind with terror, limping on regardless, and realizes that they are moving in the wrong direction. Because whatever it is behind them is herding them along like cattle towards something. It hits her like a lightning strike that their only hope for survival is to break free of the tangled, scared stampede and get off the motorway. And so, Lucy makes an abrupt 90-degree turn, gripping her brother's wrist so hard she can feel her nails digging into his flesh, dragging him behind in her slipstream, and she crashes into men and women, all these people, all of them running in the wrong direction. But she doesn't stop, doesn't look back. She smashes her hip into a car, bounces off, catches her outstretched arm on the open boot of another, keeps going. She is headed for the bank of the motorway, knowing that their best chance lies in getting off the tarmac and away from the road altogether. The squealing, crashing noises move closer. And there is something else coming now, too. A smell not unlike the smell that leaked out of the boot of their car earlier that day as it sat stinking in the sun. Not unlike the smell in the cabinet where the man with a slit throat lay drowning in his own blood. And Lucy knows what it is suddenly. It is the stench of death. Death is coming for them on huge, heavy feet. Then Lucy who is running and limping forward like a soldier through no man's land, remembers something. She remembers the body in the trunk of their car. The edge of the motorway is closer now, and beyond the vehicles and crowds, she can see a bright field of ripening wheat. It's dotted with vibrant red poppies. From here, they look like drops of blood. 
Lucy and Lucas make a final push through the charging throngs of people and throw themselves over a burning hot metal crash barrier that lines the edge of the motorway. This catapults them into a ditch, which they roll into and then crawl out of, lurching onwards into the wheat field. Long, dry stalks, some of which are still green, brush against their legs as they move, whispering things to them. It is as if a thousand thin, sibilant voices are singing the same song. And the song is an ugly one. We know what you did. The wheat stalks say, We know. A great, spine-chilling roar lifts into the air around them like a flock of black starlings taking flight, swirling about, filling every available inch of space with unending rage and pain and torment. The siblings collapse to the ground, flattening the wheat stalks, clamping their hands over their ears, from which blood now trickles, as it does from their nostrils. The earth shakes with those colossal steps. Lucy can bear it no longer. She opens her eyes and understands at last what is happening to her. She is in hell. Before her, rising above the wheat and the cars and the people, like a vast monument to the dark, strides a horse-headed beast, a skeletal thing on corded legs, naked, soiled, and trailing thick banners of acrid smoke behind it. Those banners curl and climb into the blue sky, reaching for the sun. Massive, satin-black wings flex on the beast's back, creating a shuddering new horizon, throwing those who scuttle below it into the shadows. It walks carefully, picking its way through the traffic jam, scanning the motorway. And then, at what seems at first to be on a random whim, it brings one vast hoofed foot down hard upon a vehicle. The metallic squealing noises make sense now, as car after car, vans, including the Winnebago, lorries, bikes and trailers are trampled into thin masses of warped, smoking metal and glass. But it isn't random. It's searching. Searching, with its empty eye sockets, looking for something, choosing which cars to destroy and which to save. And then it stops. There is silence for a blissful second, where not even the wheat sings to them. Lucy holds her breath, as does Lucas. The beast stills, lifting its head high, scenting the air. It brays, flexing its wings once more, and then the vast, ancient, evil head swings slowly towards them. There is no escape. Lucy closes her eyes as the ground shivers beneath her. She has set herself on this path brought herself to this place, her and her brother. Thou shalt not kill, it says in the Bible. They knew the rules from birth, but chose to ignore them. They killed, they murdered, they committed the ultimate sin. And now they are here, 
alone in a field of wheat dotted with bright crimson poppies. And the very earth is shaking. Lucy opens her eyes one last time, the smell of death stealing into her mouth, and comes face to face with the beast. It stares at her with empty holes for eyes, and if she looks hard enough, she can see fire in the distance, and in the fire, the bodies of thousands of people who are all just like her, writhing in agony. Then it raises one leg, and Lucas is screaming beside her. But Lucy is tired and doesn't want to run anymore. The foot comes down. The sun shines on. And in a parked car on an abandoned motorway in the middle of a steaming hot summer's day, blood drips from the trunk running down the resin bumper and pooling onto the tarmac. It sizzles as it lands. It's time for a brief job interview. Mothers usually want the best for their children, so it's important that they get the right nanny for the job. And in this tale, shared with us by author Tor Anders Olven, we discover the stakes involved in landing the right hire. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin and Nicole Goodnight. So let's listen in on the evaluation and piece together why this mother's child is in dire need of stability. Hello. You must be Kendra. Yes, Mrs. Michaels. So lovely to meet you. Please have a seat. You come highly recommended, so consider this a formality. Thank you. I'm very happy to hear that. Do you mind if I record the interview? I have a terrible memory, you see. No, not at all, Mrs. Michaels. Go right ahead. Bless you, child. My Roderick can be a handful, you know. But he's such a sweetheart. I'm sure he is. But after everything that happened, he is in dire need of some stability. Oh, I'm all about stability, Mrs. Michaels. Um, if you don't mind me asking... Yes? And please call me Norma. Yes, of course, Norma. You mentioned that something happened to Roderick? May I ask what? Oh, all that. Silly old thing, really. He was kidnapped about two years ago. Snatched right from daycare. In broad daylight. Oh. I'm so sorry. That, that must have been horrible. It was a challenging time, but we got through it. Did they catch them? Um, the kidnappers? They came close a few times, but they kept moving him around. For all I know, they're still out there. 
Oh, God, I'm really sorry I brought it up. Don't worry, your pretty little head, dear. I don't think we'll ever hear from them again. How can you be so sure? They never got what they wanted, did they? I refuse to pay the ransom demand. You cannot reward such atrocious behavior. Um, wow, that's a, a very interesting approach. H- how long was he uh, uh, gone for? He was restored after three months. Three months? He was with them for three whole months? Surely he must have seen something that could point the police in the right direction? No. That's the first thing they sent. I'm sorry, I don't follow. The eyes were the first parts of him they sent. I'm not sure I fully understand that they sent you pieces of Roderick? Quite. Clearly, after such trauma, you can appreciate the need for stability. Um, yes, definitely. I I mean, Jesus, how long did it go on for? What do you mean? I mean, um, you know, how many pieces did they send before they let him go? Oh, I think you're getting the wrong idea. Here, let me show you instead. Roderick, meet your new nanny, Kendra. Kendra, this is my sweet Roderick. (gasps) Do you see now? They never stopped sending him to me. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. Silly of them, wasn't it? All I had to do was reassemble him. Didn't cost me a dime. (laughs) Jesus fucking Christ. Parts of him keep falling off, though. Stability, Kendra. He needs stability. In our final tale, we meet a woman who's faced with a rather uncommon dilemma, having her covert bioweapons development program shut down. What to do in a situation like that? How do you go forward? Well, in this tale, shared with us by author K.T. Rose, we join this civilian lead scientist on a quest to keep her vision for biological warfare alive. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Kristen DiMercurio, Graham Rowett, Mick Wingert, Jesse Cornett, Aaron Lillis, Kyle Akers, Sarah Thomas, Atticus Jackson, Nicole Goodnight, Mary Murphy, and Wafia White. So let's play around with pathogens and hope that nobody grows an eyeball in their shoulder during Claire's Apocalypse. Claire's hands trembled, sending a few drops of coffee from her mug onto the bright tabletop. Silently losing the battle with her nerves, she set the mug down. She grabbed her quavering wrist and glared around. 
baffled at General Bosco's choice for their meetup. The mom-and-pop diner, Manny's, sat on the outskirts of Richmond, Virginia. Half walls and huge windows, a sea of warm sunlight splashed the burgundy leather booths, painting them orange. A violent chill tore through her body when her nervously twitching thigh grazed the side of the briefcase that was taking up the seat next to her. She didn't look at it. She simply scooched over, offering up space between her and the package. Desperate to ease her nerves, Claire gathered that he had picked this place because of the location. It was a safe distance away from D.C. and Maryland, but still too close for her comfort. It was too civilian. Her heart slammed against her chest whenever a stranger shuffled by, making their way behind the young, smiling server to a stool at the counter or one of the four booths against the sunlit windows. Whenever a passerby made brief eye contact, Claire suffocated in a heavy blanket of remorse as her insides went cold. They were lucky to be normal. They were simple people having a bite to eat at a diner early on a Wednesday morning. Not her. The idea of eating anything made her gut fold. Claire closed her eyes, sucked in a deep breath, and cleared her mind, shutting out the cold shoulder Joel had passed her as she left the cabin that morning. Her stomach clenched as images of his saddened face crossed her mind. Her husband's disappointment was new to her. On a normal day, Claire was the sensible one, making the hard decisions, putting food on the table and a roof over their heads. She had paid off their student loans and sent Amelia to the best private school in D.C. Joel, however, lived in his age-old dream of rocking out at gigs and basking in the glory of his stoner fans. Claire skimmed over the goodnight kiss she landed on Amelia's forehead after her bedtime story the night before. For the first time ever, the girl didn't care to return the favor. The people she worked so hard to please treated her like a ghost, an invisible nuisance. Shaken by the realization, Claire felt tears well up in her eyes. Get it together, Claire. Falling back into their good graces wasn't entirely impossible. We just need to get to Mexico. Her heart lightened as she imagined Joel on stage at some desert dive, grappling the mic and thrashing his blonde mop as he nodded to the band, introducing the unsuspecting masses to that horrible sound he called music. Fitted leather pants and old ripped t-shirts would become his everyday attire. Once they left, Joel could be whatever he wanted. They'd all assume new identities. And Amelia was too young to hold grudges. Claire pushed air through her pursed lips, forcing the negative thoughts out and allowing the sound of clacking dishes and murmuring diners to fill the space between her ears. Meditation brought down an easy comfort, eliciting a smile as she drifted free of worry free of the outcome, free of the mess altogether. After all, this wasn't her fault. The army could thank themselves for such a moronic decision as firing the country's top infectious disease biochemist. Claire's thirst for innovation and push for success had gotten her into the military's bioweapons program. After years of trial and error, 
the moment for her innovations to see the sun had drawn close, shedding the top-secret layer the department cloaked it under for nine years. After the early battle with genome manipulation and the tedious process of nailing down the virus's gene expression, V6790H-7, or V7, was more lethal than any army of men. The virus was a work of art, fulfilling its mission of hijacking the human body in a matter of moments while bypassing immune intervention. The aggressive takeover forced symptoms that aided in quick transmission, making breathing near an infected a death sentence. The creation came from Claire's mind. She's the true genius that brought it to life. And no one can take that from you. No one is smart enough to try. She picked up the coffee again, this time with steady hands. The nervous jitters subsided as she sipped, allowing the coffee to warm her. She smiled as faith grew in her chest. Relieved, she made up her mind. Make the trade and get out of here. Before she could get her family out of the U.S., however, she needed to unload the heavy burden sitting in the briefcase next to her, threatening her very survival and taunting her willingness to release it to a new owner, someone who'd pay handsomely for the power it represented. Feeling her hands go clammy, she frowned. No, no, this is not your fault. This is the only way. Take the money and flee. Her mantra for the morning as she fought back tears. She cringed at the thought of General Murray slapping cuffs on her. His pompous cackle would mock her during her short sentence in Guantanamo Bay. That is, if they didn't kill her on sight. Just a short time ago, Brigadier General Peter Murray had strolled into the micro lab, his bald dome blaring underneath a slick coat of aftershave, festering in his everyday amber and sandalwood stink. He wore his signature tan slacks and white button-up collared shirt. He walked with importance, his back straight as he held his posture with his hands balled at his sides. His disapproving mug took in the bright lab, Claire didn't understand why the man came inside looking around like an angry tourist. There wasn't much to see, other than the blacktop island in the middle of the lab, a whiteboard, and a line of humming refrigerator-sized incubators against both walls adjacent to the entrance. The space between the incubators broke on the north wall, giving way to a glass door which led to the decontamination chamber. Beyond that was a lab space and storage incubator, specially designed to create test and store V7. Just behind General Murray was a man who Claire recognized as General Landon Bosco. As usual, his tanned face smiled hard, raising pockmarks and laugh lines. His flashy rose gold Rolex shimmered and his pressed black suit looked expertly tailored, fitting his jacked frame nicely. Special Agent Zachary Hopper followed shortly behind his gelled-back orange hair was slick, and his usual black sunglasses concealed his eyes, hiding all expression. 
Special Agent Hopper served as General Bosco's bodyguard and led the disposal program, which reported to Claire. The program had been going strong for five years, ensuring the proper disposal of specimens used to test V7, and Hopper was the one to thank for its success. His poise, finesse, quick thinking, and experience in Iraq had paid off when it was time to eliminate an overactive specimen. Albeit a single shot to the head, no one had quick-draw hands like Hopper. Moreover, the man's emotional strength and his no-questions-asked demeanor gave the disposal program its very power. And with a low retention rate, he seemed to be the only recruit to stick around. Dr. Lyle? General Murray reached out and met her with a handshake. Sir, welcome to our facility. General Bosco nodded, and Claire returned the greeting. You have something good for me? I'm sure she does. Claire smiled. General Bosco was one of the few outside the lab to show interest in the bioweapons program. His keen fascination manifested ideas that morphed into live projects. V7 was one of them. So I hear this project of yours has been around for some time. This is my first week in this department, as you know. I've been floating around, getting caught up on the operations around here. Absolutely, sir. I have to say that it's been a long ride. Nine long years of failing, learning, and running back to the drawing board have led us to an immaculate discovery. The development phase within itself was a harsh, long process, sometimes making the idea seem impossible to achieve, but with perspective and perseverance, we finally honed the weapon of all weapons. Claire turned towards the counter and smiled at her postdoctoral scientist, Dr. Janet Ramirez, who was standing in front of the whiteboard. The young woman gleamed with anticipation, giving a welcoming smile as she stood there in her stark white lab coat. She looked like a scientist ready to share their invention with the world. Confidence intensified her serious stance, regardless of the thick, dark bags under her eyes. Janet had worked through the night, taking periodic naps on the scratchy green couch in the common area and binge drinking coffee, all to prepare for this meeting. As you know, we've been working on creating the most lethal pathogen known to man. Yes, in the beginning, the initial goal of the project was to mimic possible strains of bacterial, viral, and parasitic microbes that terrorists could use against our nation. We were actively gathering knowledge so we'd understand the threat, if it ever were to occur. But I'm happy to announce that we have accomplished that goal, plus some. The research gave us insight, paving the way for the creation of our own pathogenic weapon. Claire watched the men's faces as they made their way around the blacktop counter. General Bosco lifted his ears and brows as he examined the flow diagram on the whiteboard. Hopper was already familiar with the concept. Naturally, he stood guard at the lab's entrance, staring down the hallway with his hands crossed over his silver belt buckle. General Murray wore his normal scowl, hands crammed in his trouser pockets as he sized up the presentation. Dr. Ramirez is going to begin by teaching us about the viral life cycle of V7, starting with the initial spread, all the way up to reanimation. Then, we'll show you an example of the effects. She turned to Janet. Dr. Ramirez? 
Dr. Ramirez pointed at the image of a bullet-shaped viral particle on the far left of the flow diagram. Black crooked spikes, or glycoproteins, lined the outside, and on the inside, she'd drawn the positive-sense single-strained viral RNA, which was denoted by a black squiggly line, and the viral phosphoproteins, which were represented as light blue ovals. Thank you, Dr. Lyle. V7's viral life cycle is slightly similar What's to- What's the efficacy of the vaccine? Uh, um... <laughs> Janet stumbled over her words, appearing more off-guard than Claire herself. She dreaded the question whenever it came up in a meeting. Six percent. Claire was embarrassed at their progress toward creating an off button. Without it, the project wouldn't gain more funding. Her heart sank at the thought. That's very low, Dr. Lyle. From my understanding, you told the higher-ups it'd be improved by now. And we thought it would be as well. It's just that we focused most of our efforts and budget on expressing the viral genome. True, we haven't had much luck with containing V7 with a vaccine, but we do have a strong candidate going through trials now. That's why Major Daldry isn't here. He's running trials. The men stood quiet for what felt like hours. Destroy it. General Murray kept his expression dry, unmoved by the career-killing words. His brashness struck Claire deep, almost making her skip a breath. Janet frowned. Sir? I said, destroy it. I, I don't understand. The whites of Janet's eyes went red with tears. Sir? Claire stepped toward him. He can't be serious. They'd worked on V7 for nine years. No one could just announce it was over before learning about it or seeing the miracle at work. It's all well thought out, and under any other circumstance, I might be interested in listening to all this mumbo-jumbo. But the truth is, I'm here to shut this down. What? It felt like someone had punched her in the gut. Yes, this department is wasting time, money, and resources on something we don't need. I'm sorry to tell you, sir, but we do need this. It's the deadliest bug in the world. It has the strength to tear down societies in a matter of hours. I bet no one else has anything like this in their catalog, which means we win, right? I mean, come on. Dr. Lyle, I've always thought this was one of General Paul's worst endeavors, and I vowed to stop it once he retired and I took his place. Why? Claire was holding back the urge to tear his head off. She clenched her jaw instead. He raised a brow, as if bewildered by someone questioning his authority. General, why do you hate the idea of next-generation weaponry? We are ahead of everyone else. The competition can't keep up. Lyle. Dr. Lyle, General. I don't trust this type of stuff. She snickered. <laughs> stuff? It was almost as pathetic as listening to Joel's lecture about fracking. Of course, the ignorant had so much to say. In the days of Google, everyone was an expert. The blindest seemed to be the best at rising in the ranks, 
gaining trust and respect from the powers that be. Unfortunately, this blind bat was leading her and her scientists right into a brick wall. Microbes are dangerous entities, Dr. Lyle. They don't take aim. They don't have an isolated target. Everyone's vulnerable, and I just can't have that in our possession. It's our sole mission to protect our country, and if this thing gets out, it could kill us all. I don't want something like this existing. It is safe. Claire pointed to the glass door next to the incubators. That lab is state-of-the-art. No one goes in there without suiting up with the proper PPE, and the only people authorized to go in are me, you, now that General Paul's gone, Dr. Kel Daldry, and Dr. Ramirez. The technicians aren't even allowed to go in there. It's coded in our key cards. Dr. Lyle. They still have to do a fingerprint scan to get into the incubator. So not only do you have to have key card access to the lab, you also have to have fingerprint access to get into the vault to even get to the virus. It's absolutely safe. General Paul and I made sure of it when we designed it. And you thought you'd made sure of it by spending millions of dollars on something we don't need. Sir, we- Destroy it. He walked back around the counter then turned to meet eyes with her again. Or have the CDC come and pick it up. He headed for the door where Kel had been waiting and watching the meeting. She felt disappointment roll off his aura. General Bosco, you support this decision? After all the work we put into this? My hands are tied. He gave half a shrug. Claire rushed over to General Murray. Wait, just give us a little more time. Another year or two and we'll have the vaccine ready to give to the public. He lifted his brow. The American people won't take your vaccine. They don't even like protecting themselves against the flu for fear of microchips and whatever malarkey they're spreading nowadays. Claire felt her face go red with humiliation. She went to speak, to put that wrinkled pussball in his place for mocking her. But she bit her tongue and opted for concentrated breathing. You didn't think about that? Dr. Lyle, you've been our civilian lead scientist for what, a decade now? You should know how the public feels about getting a government-mandated vaccine. Therefore, the project is over. The decision has been made. He looked over at Kel, who'd finally crept in past Hopper. He stood close to the door, his white lab coat neatly hanging from his thin frame. Nice to see you finally show up, Major. Tell me, what do you think about all this? Kel shrugged. I... I mean, we did work really hard on getting it expressed, and... And a lot of specimens paid the costs already. It... You know what you sound like? What, sir? Kel straightened his back and raised his chin. His caramel complexion reddened. Claire imagined it was from all his superiors questioning. Although Kel had been Claire's staff physiologist for nine years, he was still the soldier who fought in Iraq. The army came first. Science stood forever second. She wasn't surprised by his half-ass answer. You sound like a man full of doubt. General Murray looked over at Claire, 
I know all about the piles and piles of specimens. We lost a lot of good men because of that little disposal program. You're lucky I don't have anyone arrested for the things going on in this department. Claire grimaced as a new worry arose. A small part of her wondered about the low retention rate of recruits who agreed to step in on the project, but they always left, leaving Hopper alone. It hadn't occurred to her that it was a serious issue going on with them. There were no reports of people getting infected, so she assumed the recruits left because they simply weren't as sturdy as Hopper. But the army was the army, whether you worked for them or not. Their secrets were their own. Lost a lot of good men. You mean someone's been infected outside of here? Her heart slammed in her chest. If that thing ever got out by accident... A chill ran down her back. No, no. Some of them quit because they don't make them like they used to. Robust, mentally aware, emotionally intelligent. Hell, if they couldn't handle your disposal program, the army has no place for them to begin with. He looked over at General Bosco, who leaned his hip against the counter and nodded in agreement. They're not built like old Hopper over there, huh? Hopper kept his back to them. No, sir. <clears throat> I found the tour informative. He passed a look at the lab where they'd stored V7. Each serum contained identical variants. Though dormant, the particles were ready to spread upon first contact with air. She wished General Murray had been one of the lucky volunteers. He belonged in the disposal program. Before this bioweapons program started, the higher-ups had it in mind that you'd make actual weapons. With your bioengineering background, I'd expect... Your rifle that spit out lasers? She rolled her eyes. How dare he insult her intelligence with such trite, childlike ideas. He cocked his head and raised a bushy brow, skepticism deep in the wrinkles along the sides of his eyes. And you have a problem with that? No. She hated the lie as it burned her tongue. I just... I just thought that this was some next generational research that could... Get you that Nobel Prize you so desperately itch for? I know all about it, Dr. Lyle. The first thing I did when I sat down in my new office was read ten years' worth of HR career track lists handed in by each employee who still works on the base. It was intriguing to find out where scientists want to end up by the time they retire. And let me tell you, you have a damn good life goal. This is my department now. Get rid of V7. Do it now for the safety of the people in this lab, facility, and country. She gave a strained nod. Fine. Whatever you say. So, uh... With you, uh, eliminating our life's work and everything, what are we supposed to do now, huh? Tears rushed forward as she watched nine long years go down the drain. She felt the corner of her lips raise and twitch. You will wait for further instruction. 
Sir, I... Dr. Lyle, it sounds like you want a write-up for insubordination. I don't want to hear anything else about this project. And if you want something to do, focus on finding a useful idea, or we'll have to seriously reconsider your tenure here. He lifted his upper lip, snarling. Now get rid of that abomination now! That's a command. She cocked her head. A command? Before she could hold back, she felt the fury surging up her throat and passing her lips. You gotta be kidding me. How dare you discredit our hard work? She pointed at the whiteboard. If you could take the stick out of your ass and see evolution happen before your very eyes, you'd see V7's potential. It could wipe out all of our enemies. It would put us above and beyond the biosciences in all other developed countries. This isn't just a bioweapon. It's a fucking superpower. You're just too outdated and ignorant to keep up with the stroll into the future. See, General, you can't command me around. I'm not one of these army boys who scurry around here desperate to stay under the radar. I'm not afraid of you, and I will fight this. You will not stop this project. She steadied her breath, hating what she said, but loving that she finally said it. The general had done nothing but lower the standard and handicap the entire department with his tired ideas and useless commands. It was only a matter of time before he sank the thing altogether, and it had only been a week. Kel's eyes nearly popped from his head. Janet's jaw dropped. General Bosco smirked. Hopper kept his back to them as he watched the hallway. With that, Marie put his hands in his pockets and headed for the door, pulling a hand free to beckon Kel to follow. Major! Walk with me. As they left the lab, headed for the hallway, Claire looked over at Janet, who held her position by the whiteboard. Such a jackass. Claire leaned her hips against the counter. (laughs) She hoped her casual chuckle would lighten the mood. But Janet glowered as she grasped the sides of her lab coat with a look of embarrassment etched across her face. You didn't do anything wrong. He just... Don't take it personally. Janet didn't say anything. Instead, she rushed out, bypassing Claire and Hopper, who didn't move from his place. She pressed her back against the wall and slid by him. You know, you don't have to do either of the things the general requested. Oh yeah? Tell my husband and daughter that. They have to eat. They need... She waved a frustrated hand. Stuff. Everyone always needs stuff from me. If I lose my job, they'd be hopeless. (sighs) I don't know about any of that. But I can help you. How? You might have said something sooner if you could. He shrugged. (laughs) Your current options end in your creation's demise. And let's be honest, Dr. Lyle. V7 is a work of a god. It deserves to exist. My thoughts exactly. 
That's why I'm going over General Murray's head. I'll face the entire Defense Department if I have to. The higher-ups know what we've been doing. Everyone does. I just don't understand how... The climate changes every day in the world of military politics. Yeah, but fair is fair. V-7 isn't a secret. It never was. Many people are anticipating what it could do. They'll fight for the project to stay alive. <laughs> you really think that's going to work? General Murray will win. Fighting will only prolong the inevitable. So, your real options are to destroy it, or sell it, and tell him you destroyed it. That's illegal. I signed a proprietary clause specifically... I, I can't... Are you suggesting... You don't have that much time to decide. He opened his sport coat and pulled a white card free. He placed it on the counter. As soon as you decide, give me a call. Then we can discuss it. I expect you'll reach out sometime this afternoon, but that's just a guess. With that, he nodded at Hopper, who followed him out into the hallway, leaving Claire in the lab alone to mourn the years of hard work and hope, and to ponder the new possibility of saving her creation. By the time human resources came to Claire's office during lunch to walk her off the premises, Kel had already warned her that she was fired and that he had accepted her vacant position with very little convincing from the general. With that new information, Claire had rushed back to the lab and took the vials from the incubator vault, sliding them into a briefcase tailored to keep the virus in a temperature-controlled environment in case of a national emergency or any other reason they needed to be transported. She loaded it into her car, walked back up to her office, and waited an hour before being escorted off the base. It took no time to contact General Bosco about the next steps. Claire silently counted the missed soccer games and social calls, the canceled vacations and skipped dance recitals, all sacrificed to make the United States the deadliest country on earth. And for what? To find herself sitting in a diner, daunted by the nonchalant glances from its patrons? To be on the run from the military police, forcing her family into a new life they didn't want? To be pulled further away from a dream she had tasted, teased by its reality for a short decade? In her own head, she could only judge and wonder as she sat in public with the nation's deadliest secret taking up the seat next to her. She wasn't supposed to be in hiding, watching her daughter play in the desolate woods of Southern North Carolina. Her husband was supposed to be living like a king, not preparing rations and water, hand-washing clothes, and hunting for their food while preparing for the worst. She wasn't supposed to be her family's enemy, the subject of their hateful glares, and constantly facing the question, why couldn't you just let it go from Joel in the midst of one of his tearful tantrums? As Claire sat in that diner on that chilly Wednesday morning, her family was out maintaining the cabin for their short stay, 
deeply saddened, longing for the lives they used to lead. There was no going home. That beautiful house she'd strived for was gone. They had to start over. But before she and Joel could come up from the murky depths for fresh air, she needed to tie off the biggest loose end. Claire felt a soft tap on her shoulder, causing her to spin around and catch the intruder's eye. The smell of menthol radiated from his pale skin. His youthful face smiled big at her, showing tinted straight teeth. Relax, Dr. Lyle. She gauged the man standing over her. His unfamiliar, bloated eyes almost took her attention from his scraggly hair and orange stubble on his chin. But his high cheekbones and strong jaw were prominent. Agent Hopper? She took in a gasp as her body began trembling again. She didn't know the man could grow a beard or that his vocabulary stretched past, yes ma'am. Hopper pulled a plump backpack from his shoulders and slid into the booth across from her. The leather screamed with his movements as he got comfortable. He sat the bag next to him, blocking himself inside the booth with the window on one side and his huge bag on the other. He sniffed and wiped his nose with the back of his hand. Claire felt her face twist at the man. He was in a bad way. He smiled, then nodded at the server, who rushed around the counter and came right over. What can I get you? Her young face beamed with promise and politeness as she charmed them with her attentiveness. Claire had wondered about the girl since she took her own seat. So cheerful and alive, Monica, as it said on her name tag, was fine working directly with the public. The perfect depiction of hell to many, including Claire. She'd seen Monica laughing and talking, calling customers by their first names. She had a warm heart. Coffee's fine, thank you. Hopper rocked a little before settling back into his booth. I'm making some fresh right now, so it'll be a short wait. Is that all right? Of course it is, dear. He gave her a tinted smile. While Monica went over to check the coffee, Claire cocked her head, studying, curious about the man. This couldn't be the guy General Bosco sent over to make the transaction. This wasn't secret agent Zachary Hopper, world-renowned army vet, a hero in his own right. This wasn't the quiet but straight-to-business soldier she and Kel had trained to dispose of V-7's specimens. The man who watched her with a disturbed grin from across the table was someone else. He was an imposter, stealing the place of the perfect soldier. He wasn't clean-pressed or professional. He wore a fitted leather jacket with a holy green lantern t-shirt underneath. His jeans were skinny, hugging his thin legs. Nothing like the caliber of man she'd grown accustomed to. What happened to you? What happened to me? I'm fine. I'm happier than I've ever been. He sniffed and laid an arm over the top of the booth. So, do you have it? 
Uh, yes, it's here. She rubbed the briefcase taking up the seat next to her. The impeccable Italian full-grain leather was easy on the hands. The finest of its kind. But inside, a portable incubator was preserving the serums. Hopper flicked his fingers and pointed to the briefcase, beckoning her to pass it to him. Are you sure you're all right? <laughs> what? He looked himself over, frantically searching for what, which, in Claire's eyes, was everything. He looked back at her. Is it because I'm not in uniform? <laughs> that would make everything suspicious, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I guess you're right. I know I'm right. Now hand it over. She placed the briefcase on the table and slid it across. Claire watched Hopper gawk and rub the top of it. His eyes widened, going wild, as he chuckled and went to unfasten the golden latches holding the thing shut. Nearly hopping up from the booth, Claire shook her head and reached over, planting a hand firmly on the briefcase top, plastering it shut. No, no, don't. Don't open it here. Don't open it ever unless you're skilled enough to handle it, understand me? Hopper cocked his head and dropped his hand to his lap. His dapper grin faded as he sat back. <sighs> he placed the briefcase next to him on the booth against the window and glared daggers at her as if to say, How dare you? Then his eyes sailed over to the chef's station behind the counter. Hopper's face curved in amusement again returning that off-putting smirk to his lips. Claire followed his eyes to the TV behind the counter. She hadn't paid any attention to it since she'd shown up. The newscaster, French Adams, stood in front of the foreground of what looked like a police standoff outside of a bank. Buildings stood tall around the cluster of patrol cars stationed before the building in distress, blocking the street. Police officers crouched low, aiming their weapons at First Choice Bank. Claire couldn't make out what the man said on the muted TV, but guessed it had something to do with why people were at the bank so early in the morning. Hey, hon! Monica perked up and rounded the corner, heading straight for them. Yes? Can you turn it up or... Oh, so sorry about that, but I need to be able to hear the chef. Are closed captions all right? Before Hopper could answer, she already started fussing with the remote, bringing up white letters over a black bar. She smiled at them, and then went to attend to a family of four sitting a few booths back. On the TV, French Adams held a hand to his ear as he spoke into his microphone. A big number four showcased just below the foam top. Richmond, the standoff that began yesterday at high noon is still going on, and Channel 4 is going to continue to bring you coverage. Eighteen hours have gone by, and the gunman refuses to... Isn't it crazy? It's a shame what people will do to... He peered at the ceiling. Ah, what's the word I'm looking for? He scooped at the air as if trying to catch a thought. Then he leaned forward, eyes searching Claire for an answer. Get money? 
Claire wondered when they'd get down to business. No need to waste time. This wasn't a date. He wasn't her friend. He was a bodyguard acting as an arms dealer. Nothing more. Claire couldn't care less about some sorry schmuck standing off with the police at the ass crack of dawn. No. I was going to say, it's a shame what people will do just to prove their point. How do you mean? Monica sat his coffee down. Let me know if you need anything else. Hopper nodded at her. You're a delight, Monica. Thank you. She gave an appreciative smile before walking off. Hopper moved his attention back to Claire. Oh, come on, Dr. Lyle. You're not the type to play dumb. We all know how this is going to end. Just like the deranged man in the bank knows how that's going to pan out. He's already killed four people, displaying their demises through those tall picture windows, egging the cops on, showing the world and their families that he's in control. See, the unhinged robber knows he's not going to jail. He knew that before he stepped foot inside that bank yesterday afternoon. He didn't go in there to get money, alone, or to check his deposit box. No, he went in there to take a stand. He's leaving his mark by making his point. He chose his destiny. And until those cops take him down, he's going to control the last minutes he has left in his miserable life. Without moving his face, he eyed the TV. See? Claire looked over to find a woman in a business suit pinned against the man's front. He buried the barrel of his pistol into her thick, long, dark hair. She cried hysterically, heaving at the chest as the man, who looked homeless, tattered clothes, a long blonde beard and long, stringy hair, yelled through his toothless maw, letting out muted shouts in her ear. Her hair swayed with his taunts. Claire frowned as she watched the woman cry for her life. What if her family was watching, sharing her last moments vicariously through the TV? Were they crying with her, wishing they could save her? Claire would hate for Amelia to see that. She was only nine, and as a mother, Claire did everything to protect her from the cruelties in the world. She protected Amelia and Joel. He was almost as frail with his idealistic views on life and love truly believing that peace could be held if everyone got along. But Claire always reminded him that that wasn't the world they lived in. It's every man for himself. The principle is proven through biology, survival of the fittest. Her daughter and her husband were her priority. Nothing else. Hopper, where is the money? Where are the tickets? I need to leave. What's the rush? He tilted his head, seemingly baffled by Claire's demand. She squinted at him, seething as impatience accrued. 
What? We're here for the trade, nothing else. You think I don't know that? Claire flinched at the sudden outburst. He brought his voice down, but continued to leer. You'd think you wouldn't mind having coffee with the man who's done your dirty work for years. Hopper, I... No! No, you're... He put his hands up as if surrendering. His rage slackened as he breathed deeply. You're right. You're always right. You're so down to business. To the point. You're such a professional, even though you technically don't work anymore. I see that. And you're right. He chuckled. <laughs> falling back into his odd, manic calm. Off-put, Claire crossed her arms and assessed. What? You studying me, Doc? No. You're sounding... You're worrying me. You? Worried? Nah, not you. You're just pretending like you don't understand. Scowling, he sized her up. Ah. You don't understand. He scratched his head frantically. Shame. But I hoped you'd at least try to get it. I don't... You don't understand because you don't understand what it's like to be me. To be a man like me. To do the things I do. To, to see the things I've seen and then live a piece of them every day. He opened his hands and put them on the table, forcing them down with a dull thump. These... These have soaked in a lot of blood. <laughs> All because of my job. My career. Whatever you call whatever it is that I do for money. I'm a... He withdrew his hands and huffed. <sighs> I thought you'd understand because you've done your science shit made sacrifices for your career. You've... you've even killed. Claire shook her head and leaned in, dropping to a whisper. I've never killed anyone, and neither have you. Now keep your voice down. He leaned in, meeting her near the center of the table. Claire, you taught me how to put down your volunteers. You made me go out and get prisoners and march them to the... Copper, stop it. All right? It's all over and behind us. Now... Is it, though? He leaned back, pinning his back to the booth. See? No. No, I don't... You don't get it. He banged an index finger to his temple. The memories don't go away. They live up here forever. They rule my sleep, haunt my thoughts. See, when I'm posted and... And... He sat up straight and crossed his arms. He adjusted his lips into a stern position, making the face Claire had grown accustomed to over the years. When I'm standing up there all day, defending a psychopath, I'm thinking, I 
thinking about the lies and the kidnappings and how I killed people after they were already dead. Or some days I find myself as a young cadet, stomping through the sand and feeling the sun roast me in my combat uniform. I smell the irony blood of kids and women as they lay dead in the streets. I inhale nitroglycerin smoke, forever staining my senses with death. I'm a phantom, born to bring down the wrath of the highest powers. A pawn, a man lurking around, not looking for a purpose because I'm... I'm dead inside. Just like him. He pointed to the screen. The homeless man carried on in the window for all to see. But you know what? What do you care? You just want this conversation to end. So you can bury your past in a collection of reminders of the worst things to happen in human history. You're so desperate that you'd put your world-renowned work in the hands of a prick who doesn't deserve it. Claire frowned. I'd rather him have it than to have it destroyed. You know how much work went into the project, Hopper. I shouldn't have to explain because you were there, and a very essential piece to its success. I just... I couldn't live with myself if I had to destroy it. Do you know who General Bosco is? What he has? The man has a fucking shard from the atomic bomb that fell on Hiroshima. Soil from Chernobyl. Bullet fragments that hit Lincoln's skull. Casings from the Alamo. He owns a sick museum of reminders, and you're adding to it. You're expanding his collection of triggers. I had no idea. Of course not. Because there aren't many people who live to tell about it. It's a hell of a secret to hold. And when you're sworn to secrecy, people tend to pull you deep into their shit. I tried suppressing the horrors of realizing my purpose on this earth. My psychiatrist knows that. And by his order, I shouldn't be a soldier, a protector of secrets, or the deliverer of the abysmal. He said it wasn't good for me, and he tried settling me down with those pills. He sipped his coffee, narrowing his eyes at her. I don't like them very much. See, the pills make me cloudy. I can't see my reality anymore. No more bloody memories. No more screams. No more anything. But when the visions come back, they come back hard. They bite and claw and grab at my shirt and pants. They want to sink their teeth deep into my flesh and taste me. Gorge on my being and turn me into them. They want to take me to the land of the dead. To a better place that makes sense. But I stop them with one in the head, just like you taught me. I take control over the dead that wish they were still alive like me. Rabid and reaching. They know the closest route to being alive again is by feasting on the living. Eliminating the enemies they envy so much. The shock made Claire's blood run cold. If she'd known about Hopper's mental health, he wouldn't have been considered for the job. But Bosco pushed for Hopper to have the job, so he got it. Bosco gloated about Hopper's abilities and his special gift with keeping special secrets. But Hopper's current deteriorating demeanor said otherwise. 
Hopper, are you taking your pills? Yeah. Yeah, come on. I'm working right now. Wouldn't want to risk my career as a sadist's bodyguard over not taking pills. Sadist? The more Claire learned about Bosco, the more she wanted to cut and run. No wonder he had a bodyguard. He had a secret worth hiding. Hopper nodded. Yeah. A sadist. Lucifer himself. He's one of those people who looks like a saint on the surface, but is really a blood-sucking demon. He's the perfect candidate for the Antichrist. But it's too late to consider that now, isn't it? Hopper opened his leather coat and pulled out a manila envelope. He slid it across the table. Speaking of which, I think it's about time that I got back to him. We all have places to be, right? Claire grabbed it, sensing a small bit of relief. Finally, the trade was complete. She was ready to leave her last bit of guilt there on the table with what remained of her past. She opened it and pulled out two pieces of paper. A check signed by General Bosco. The Capitol building stood behind the words. And a huge number. Three million dollars. The other sheet of paper, and perhaps the most important one, was red with black words on it that said, Pass Baja 24.08501, comma, negative 111.647028, occupant 9546252, admission 1. Is this going to cover my entire family? Hopper sipped his coffee and hummed blissfully. Claire scowled. What do you mean? It was a part of the agreement. Although Bosco claims B7 would be a collectible, I need to know that my family is safe from the effects if it were ever released. I was promised safe passage with my husband and kids. Hopper stared at her for what felt like a couple of minutes. Yeah, Bosco mentioned that. And the agreement still stands. For one person. He sipped his coffee again. Her heart dropped as panic ensued, making her face hot. What? Yeah. It turns out that there are people more important than you. They'll be needed for the end of the world, so most of those spots are for them. You know, should this gem of a bioweapon be released. I'm surprised he was able to make room for you. She bit her lower lip. The deal is off. She threw the envelope and papers at his face and reached for the briefcase. He slapped a hand down on it, guarding it against her grasp. I'm afraid it's too late for that, Dr. Lyle. You have your money and your one pass to the underground bunker. The deal is as it stands. She shot to her feet and stood as tall as she could from the booth, reaching for the briefcase, ready to smack that condescending grin off Hopper's face. Ah! Uh-uh. He leaned over the briefcase. You don't want any attention, do you? A distraught military scientist just fired from our country's secret bioweapons program walking around with a fancy briefcase full of secrets is awfully suspicious. 
don't you think? With that, she flopped back down into the booth, breathing hard and seeing red. Hopper raised a brow. Because I respect your mind so much, I'll let you have that freebie. He narrowed his eyes at her. But try it again. And you won't be leaving this diner alive. And neither will anyone else. He grasped the latch. You know what this thing can do. And you know how lethal it is. You're the genius that made it. The saint that set it. And now you're the world's worst nightmare. I break one of these vials, and most of us have 20 seconds before V7 sets in. You wouldn't dare. Her shout collected looks from the people at the booth behind them, and all the way back by the bathroom. I wouldn't? General Bosco told you that it was for a collection, sure. But you don't know who I am. Yes, I do, Agent Hopper. I trained you. He sneered. Right. Tell me, did you mean to go pale in the face when you saw me out of uniform? Are you at least a little concerned, Claire? I mean, we've never held an actual conversation before. It was always, shoot him in the head with you. That's all I ever got. She couldn't respond to the man because he was right. She didn't know Hopper at all outside of his duties to her department. He leaned in a little, as if trying to hide his next words from prying ears. I could be some terrorist flying under the radar. I could be some hack that hijacked this entire trade and paid you three million dollars for something that has the power to end this world full of radical, money-hungry, depressed, hateful people. Or maybe I'm the army vet that's seen enough and doesn't want anyone to see anything ever again. Claire's nostrils flared as tears fell from her eyes. You wouldn't do that. I wouldn't. You don't know that. And if you did, let's not pretend like you'd care. All that matters is that you prove your point. Go ahead, Claire. Prove it. Show the most powerful government in the world that they can't keep you in the corner. Not with your MIT bachelor's degree, UCLA MD, PhD, and Harvard postdoc. Not you. The woman that was hired by our trustful, all-knowing government as a research scientist and moved up to lead pathogenic biochemist in the record time of two years. Not Claire. The woman who's played super wife, mom, and American hero scientist over the last decade. Not you. How do you know those things about me? Hopper didn't answer. He only scrutinized her with that smirk. I have to get going now. He stood from his seat and grabbed the briefcase. He turned to Monica, who had been cleaning the now empty table behind them, rubbing his flat stomach. Where's the bathroom? That coffee ran right through me. Right in the back there, sir. Monica pointed to the door next to the last booth where the family of four sat enjoying their breakfast and stealing glances at the busy TV. Claire grabbed Hopper's arm as he started towards the back of the diner. Stop. How could... I... 
I need those tickets for my family. They're all I have. You can't make me choose. You just can't. I'm sorry he fooled you, Claire. I guess the only thing you can do now is hope that V7 never gets out. Hopper, just give it back, and we can work out another deal. I can't do that. No, you son of a bitch! I don't care about what you do with the vials. Release them, eat them, destroy them, hell, put them on display. But you will get me two more tickets. That was the agreement. He snatched his arm away. Don't think on it too long, Claire. Just accept what may or may not happen next. He continued strolling to the bathroom, briefcase in one hand and his huge bag against his back. Claire slumped down into the booth, gaping at her coffee's liquid surface. It sat still as her mind raced. Guilt sunk deep and clenched her gut. What did I just do? Stupid, stupid, stupid. She slapped a palm to her head. She felt a bruise enveloping her forehead and the eyes of a few patrons resting on her. She slowed her breathing. Okay, okay, it's okay. He'll... I'll just call General Bosco. Yeah, just call. Heart palpitations interrupted her train of thought as an angsty cry erupted from the diners. They'd been tied in to the broadcasted standoff. She looked up, hoping for a worthwhile distraction. The homeless man's face was covered in fresh blood as he shouted and grabbed at his lap, taunting the police through the window. The woman in the suit lay still on the floor, her face in a puddle of blood. Then, the man stuck the barrel between his tucked-in lips and, lifting his free hand, opened and closed it slowly as if waving goodbye. His skull shattered as the bullet blew crimson and blackened chunks out the back of his head. He fell back with the impact of the bullet, leaving nothing to see but the bottoms of his gray sneakers. Monica unmuted the TV, bringing in the urgent voice of the distraught French Adams. Ladies and gentlemen, live here on Action 4, the man who claimed five innocents just claimed himself, making it six lives lost in this horrific standoff. A ruckus in the back of the diner grabbed Claire's attention. An older man fell from the booth, cracking his silver head against the white tile floor. He lay still on his side, allowing the blood to flow freely from his parted lips. Someone call 911. A woman, maybe his wife, yelled as she and the two children crouched next to him. The woman pushed at his shoulder, but he rocked back, limp, unresponsive. <coughs> the woman reached onto the table and snatched napkins from the dispenser. The frazzled girl held napkins to her face, allowing them to soak red. Oh my god, your, your nose is bleeding. A woman two booths back pointed at Monica, who just sat a plate on the table, watching the chaos unfold in the back. Her face had gone pale as she stopped reaching for her apron pocket. Monica cupped a hand over her nose. Oh god, I'm so sorry. I'll... <coughs> <coughs> She coughed and planted both hands on the table, 
leaking blood from her eyes onto the scrambled eggs. Oh, it got in! The woman's complaint fell short underneath a bloody cough. Red drops ran from the sides of her eyes. Claire's heart dropped as she relived her project in an uncontrolled environment. She'd simulated such an event, planned, developed, and perfected it. The method of transmission was robust, tried and true. Aerosol splatters, spittle from forced coughs, and involuntary bleeding as blood clots formed in the vessels, forcing blood out of every orifice. Claire's chest tightened and her lungs cramped. Oh no, oh. <coughs> Throat itching with an intense burn, Claire coughed into her hands and then looked down. They were covered in scarlet spritzes. <coughs> oh no, <coughs> oh God, no. Her belly folded and erupted in harsh pain. It felt like she'd ingested glass shards that ripped her gut, tearing her apart by shutting down unnecessary bodily functions and redirecting available energy to the brain and heart. Ian, please, get up. Someone call 911. Surprisingly, the woman on the floor hadn't started bleeding, her nor the little boy next to her. The little girl laid her head on the floor. The woman nudged the girl's side. No response. Pots and pans banged loudly as they slapped the kitchen floor, sending a radiant high-pitched sound throughout the diner, making Claire squeal as the noise clawed at her fragile eardrums. She planted her hands to her ears, barely feeling them soak as her eardrums disintegrated from the perpetual ringing. Deafness, another symptom. Then a loud thud shook the floor as if a big body slammed into it. Oh God, Tim. Monica staggered over to the chef's station, leaning on it to hold herself up. Dad. She coughed out, getting red spittle on the wall. She lifted her phone from her apron and put it against her face, struggling to hold it between brittle fingers. She managed to get it to her face and yelled, Yes, nine, one. Dark blood dripped from the phone as every orifice in her face bled, coating it. Claire laid her head on the table, summoning tears that wouldn't come. It's over. The sick bastard did it. He released the virus. Claire's virus. She imagined V7 tunneling its way through her respiratory system, tricking white blood cells into believing it was random cellular debris, then taking control of the white blood cells mechanics and replicating, shutting down key functions required for life while creating its own preferred environment. Claire watched the unconscious William on the floor, knowing he was dead, like the many rats, dogs, monkeys, and unknowing human volunteers before him. He showed the classic signs, paper white skin and blue lips. The bleeding seemed to slow down and the puddle underneath his head stopped spreading. But 
the viral life cycle wasn't over. In a matter of seconds, the brain stem, muscles, and heart would work to continue the spread. She watched the moment when the woman wiped his nose clean and no new blood replaced the mess. Phase one was over. One. Two. Three. Claire watched his hand. Four. Five. Six. William's index finger fidgeted, and he opened his eyes as his pupils widened, encapsulating the whites. All the while, the woman cried on her knees, oblivious to what was coming. Claire watched him grab her cheeks and pull her face forward. He sank his teeth into the unsuspecting woman's nose, tearing it clean from her face. She let out a shriek, as she fell back on her rump while holding her face and watched the man clumsily rising to his feet. He launched at her, tearing a bite from her jugular, soaking his face in her blood as it squirted wildly. She choked as he held her still at the shoulders, helping himself to her dying body. Six seconds the fastest time to reanimation on record. Those with compromised immune systems didn't stand a chance. Joel and Amelia didn't stand a chance. Claire couldn't call them because she'd left her phone behind. Bosco's demand. She could rush back home to them, but that too was unlikely. Based on her symptoms, it would only be a matter of minutes before she was dead. She could try to contain it, but the air was tainted, inside and out. She lifted her head on stiffened neck and looked away from the carnage to find Monica dropping behind the counter. The woman two booths back lay in a puddle of her own blood atop the table. Head going light on her shoulders, Claire sat staring at the window. The street was clear, but not for long. The boy who had been sitting with the now reanimated William and the very unlucky woman ran past, shoving the glass door out and disappeared outside, not knowing it was too late to save his own skin. Patient Zero was already primed, conditioned, and on the move. Monica Rose leaped over the counter with lightning speed and raced after the boy, following him out into the street as she groaned. Red foam falling from her lips, black eyes feral and searching. Claire lay her head back on the table, facing the news as they talked about the robbery and the madman's demise. Apparently, there was a suicide note in his pocket. She strained to make out the words. It read, I'm sorry I wasn't good enough. Ladies and gentlemen, this was a horrific event that took place here in Richmond. It'll take a lot of time for us to heal. It... A drop of blood fell from his nose and sat on his top lip. What's that? He squinted at the camera. Well, sorry. Sorry, folks. I... He ran the back of his hand over the blood, 
only for it to be replaced with a cascade of red pouring from his eyes. He coughed and hacked, spraying the camera. His story cut to a commercial about spring water. Claire watched the ice-capped mountain peaks as her bones ached. They hurt too much for her to touch anything, even to have her feet on the floor. By the time she looked around, all the patrons had filed out into the streets except William, who was gorging on his wife's entrails. The woman lay there, wearing the look of betrayal and death on her deformed face. Her exposed skull glistened, slick with blood from her nose up to her eyes, which bulged as if ready to roll out of place and onto the floor. She shook a little as William scooped out more intestines from her gut and shoved them into his mouth. Claire would have cried if her body was producing enough water to do so. She glared into the cold of space, hearing Joel's laugh and Amelia's questions. She'd never see them again. No one would see anyone again. In a matter of hours, the eastern seaboard would be infected. In a week, the entire country, and that's if no one flew international. A soft tap on her head beckoned her to will her stiff neck to react. The careful movement took effort from her entire body as she winced and groaned at a crippling ache that tore down her spine. She thought her bones would collapse if she moved too fast. Or at all. Hopper peered down at her through the goggles of a gas mask. He waved an assault rifle at his side with arms coated in phone books tied together with rope. His skinny jeans weren't so skinny anymore. He wore gray joggers stuffed with something like paper shreds. His backpack sat against his back, flattened as if empty. No briefcase in sight. I get to be a soldier again because of you. Thanks for proving your point, Claire. He winked, then took off for the door. As the fires wane and embers glow, our stories cease as shadows grow. The night is long and darkness deep. Remain with us. Embrace no sleep.
The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mikulski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member who is under our spell. This audio production is copyright 2021 and 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media 